Let's bow our heads and pray for God's power to be at work among us as his word is preached. A prayer based on Psalm 119, verse 18. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. When Dutch art collector Dirk Hanemar saw the painting on a visit to Paris in 1975, he was convinced it was an undiscovered masterpiece. The painting shows a tall windmill, a windmill identifiable as the Blutfin Mill, which had once stood in the Montmartre district of Paris. In the painting, there are steps to one side of the windmill and people in brightly colored clothes are making their way up and down those steps. There was no signature on the painting, but Dirk Hanemar was sure that he had found a work by Vincent van Gogh, or van Gogh, as I think his name is pronounced in America. I'm planning to stick with the European <laughs> uh, pronunciation. Hanemar bought the painting for the equivalent of $2,500 in today's money and then insured it for 16 times that amount. Actually, I'm just thinking back to what I was reading about this. It's, it was $2,500 in European money. That's what I'm trying to say. Not $2,500 in today's money. I think you'll follow me. He took the painting back to Holland and announced to the art world that he had obtained a previously unknown Van Gogh. Hanemar said, this discovery is not an attribution, but an absolute certainty. But no one paid any attention to him. In fact, he was mocked. In the words of one Dutch art expert, Dirk Hanemar was the laughingstock of the art world. But it turned out those scornful critics spoke too soon. 35 years later, in 2010, too late, sadly, for Dirk Hanemar, who had died some years earlier, an investigation carried out by the Van Gogh Museum established that the painting known as the Blutfin Mill truly was by Van Gogh and was worth millions. When the art experts mocked, Dirk Hanemar's discovery in 1975, their scorn was badly misplaced. Mockery is a, a running theme in the passage from Matthew's Gospel that we're looking at together this evening. The mockery of Jesus as he dies. The mocking begins in verses 28 and 29. Early in the morning, on the day of Jesus' execution. The soldiers know that Jesus claims to be a king and they use that as the basis for their ridicule. I'll read from verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. The mocking then ignites once again further down the page in verse 39. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. It continues in verse 41, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So if we put all of that together, soldiers, passers-by, chief priests, teachers of the law, elders, and the others being crucified alongside him, they all contribute to the mockery of Jesus on that day, the first Good Friday. In 1975, art critics ridiculed Dirk Hanemar's discovery because they assumed it wasn't the genuine article. And here we see people mocking Jesus for the same reason. They assume that he's not truly the king of the Jews, the son of God, the king of Israel. In the end, it was certain features of the windmill painting that demonstrated to everyone's satisfaction that it really was a genuine Van Gogh. The paint was analysed with x-rays which showed that the pigments were the same as those found in other Van Gogh pictures from that time. The thread count of the canvas matched the thread count of another canvas painted on by Van Gogh. Infrared reflectography, which apparently allows you to see beneath paint behind paint revealed straight lines drawn in pencil on the canvas to help the artist get the proportions right. That's something Van Gogh is known to have done in his work in Paris at that time. Those features and others demonstrated the painting's authenticity and silenced the mockers. And in a similar way, there are three features of Jesus' crucifixion that show he truly is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the King of Israel. And those three features are the cloud, the cry, and the curtain. For the remainder of the sermon, we're going to look at each one in turn, beginning with the cloud. The cloud. Verse 45 says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. The sixth hour is midday, 12 noon. The ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So for three hours in the middle of the day, 12 noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness. Now, darkness in the daytime meant something to the people of Israel. It communicated something to them, something which should have made all those mockers reconsider their position. But before we get on to that meaning, the meaning of the darkness, we need to focus on the phenomenon itself, this darkness 
there is much that can be said about it even before we get on to its meaning. So here are three observations about the darkness. The first observation is that it couldn't have been caused by a total eclipse of the sun, at least not any usual kind of total eclipse of the sun, because that would have lasted for only seven minutes or so, whereas this darkness went on for three hours. There doesn't seem to be any natural event that could explain away this three-hour darkness. A dust storm can certainly block out daylight, but dust or sand would have driven people away to take shelter. And that's not what happens here. According to verse 47, there are still people standing there. I've called this section of the sermon the cloud. We don't know whether the darkness was caused by a cloud, but if it was, it would obviously have been no ordinary cloud to block out the light of the sun completely for three hours. The point here is that whatever means God used to cause the darkness, in the final analysis, it was a supernatural phenomenon. So the message of the darkness, which we'll get into in a moment, was God's message. God's message. The second observation about this phenomenon is that the darkness is also recorded in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. And all three of those books, Matthew, Mark and Luke, were written during the eyewitness time frame. In other words, at the time of writing, there were still people alive who had been living in Israel at the time of the crucifixion. The eyewitness time frame is 80 years or so. There have always been people who have lived to the age of 90 or older. And it's not controversial to say that Matthew, Mark and Luke were all written within 80 years of Jesus' death. That's something most scholars would agree with and not just Christian scholars. What that means is that when Matthew wrote his gospel, his readers could have consulted people who had been alive at the time of the events Matthew describes. Matthew's readers could have asked those elderly people, did this darkness really happen? You can't get away with false claims about three hours of darkness in the middle of the day while eyewitnesses are still alive. And let's not forget Mark and Luke they also had to answer to their readers because the same claim is made in those Gospels. Here's the third and final observation on the darkness before we move on to its meaning. The darkness is actually mentioned by two ancient historians who weren't Christians, Phlegon and Talus. Here's what Phlegon says. In the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, that's the early 30s AD, an eclipse of the sun happened, greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night so that the stars were seen in the sky. That's from Phlegon's chronicle of world history called the Olympiads which was written sometime in the 2nd century, most probably around 
the middle of the second century, around 150 AD. The other non-Christian historian, Talus, actually links the darkness with the crucifixion of Jesus. He tries to explain it away as a solar eclipse that just happened to coincide with Jesus' death. But as we saw earlier, it couldn't have been a regular solar eclipse because it lasted for so long. Now, I think you would expect non-Christian historians to take an interest in a highly abnormal astronomical event, and it turns out at least two of them did take an interest in it, Phlegon and Talus. So here we have an extraordinary claim. There are three hours of darkness in daytime, but it's being made by writers who claim to be accurate, trustworthy guides, and they're writing at a time when people are still alive who could pour cold water on the claim if it didn't actually happen. Not only that, but we also find two non-Christian writers referring to an extraordinary darkness in daytime that happened at that very time in history. And this is what always happens when we poke about in the Gospels. We find the claims they make stand up to investigation. Well, let's now turn to the meaning of the darkness, because in that culture, darkness in the daytime meant something to people. When we go into stores at the end of October and we see uh, cardboard pumpkins and witches' hats, we pick up on the meaning and Remember that it's nearly Halloween. To people who have just arrived in America from a very different culture, those things would just seem bizarre. Cardboard pumpkins, witches, hats, they wouldn't, they wouldn't signify anything. And it's like that with darkness in the daytime. It doesn't mean anything to us, to our culture, but the people of Israel would have understood right away that God was punishing sin. On the previous evening throughout Israel, every family in the land had celebrated the Passover, which includes retelling the story of the 10 plagues in Egypt. That is a, an element of the Passover meal. And one of those 10 plagues sent by God to punish Egypt was a plague of darkness. Exodus chapter 10 says that total darkness covered all Egypt apart from the areas where the Israelites lived for three days. God was punishing Egypt for its wrongdoing. And that was fresh in the minds of everyone in Israel following their Passover supper the night before. They knew that darkness during daytime meant that God was punishing sin. So when darkness falls at 12 noon on that day of Jesus' crucifixion, we can imagine people throughout Israel coming out of their homes and workplaces to witness this bizarre phenomenon. Children stop chasing each other and go to their parents to ask them what's happening. People stand in their doorways, gazing up at the sky anxiously. It's the middle of the day. The sun hasn't gone down below the western horizon, but it's no longer casting its light onto the earth. It's as if the sun is refusing to shine. The people of Israel knew that darkness in daytime meant that God was punishing sin, and so they would naturally have asked themselves as they stood in those doorways, 
Who's being punished? Who's being punished? And that question brings us to the next of the three features of the crucifixion that combine to show that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the King of Israel. The second feature is the cry. The cry, please look down to verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cloud signified to everyone that sin was being punished. Jesus' cry tells us that he is the one being punished. It's a cry of distress as Jesus experiences punishment from God over and above the love he has always received from God. On one level, that love was still present. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can't be disassembled. But Jesus was so conscious of God's anger against sin, directed at him, that God's love became like a memory. To Jesus, it was as if the Father had turned his face away. It's not because Jesus himself has done anything wrong. It is because other people's sins have been placed upon him and he's being punished for all of that sin. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus willingly took the punishment that we deserve so that we could go free and have eternal life with him. <clears throat> Tomorrow marks the 15th anniversary of the deadly shootings at Virginia Tech on April 16th, 2007. A senior at Virginia Tech shot dead 33 people at the college. One incident from that terrible massacre gives us a picture of what Jesus did for us through his death on the cross. When gunshots were first heard, a 76-year-old professor named Liviu Librescu was in the middle of his mechanical engineering class. Professor Librescu told his students to escape through the windows while he himself held up the gunman by barricading the door with his own body. He was shot multiple times through the door and he died, but all apart from one of his students escaped. Professor Librescu gave his life so that those students might live. He stood in the way for their sake. I'm sure tomorrow on the 15th anniversary of the massacre, the students who escaped through the windows of Professor Librescu's classroom will think to themselves, here I am, alive, because of Professor Librescu. He died to save me.
And that's what believers in Jesus can say about him. He died to save me. Jesus stood in the way for us, protecting us from God's condemnation of our sin. It would have been right and just for that condemnation to hit us. But it didn't and it won't if we're trusting in Jesus, because like Professor Librescu, Jesus stood in the way. It's important to say that every illustration falls short at some point, and we mustn't think of the Father as a gunman. No, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit lovingly planned this salvation together. It was a joint enterprise, agreed before the creation of the world. Well, there's one more feature of the crucifixion for us to consider this evening. Rather like the pigments used in that painting of the windmill, or the lines behind the paint drawn on the blank canvas, or the thread count of the canvas itself. This third feature will help us authenticate the crucifixion. It shows us that the death of Jesus on the cross was no ordinary crucifixion. It was a death with the power to deal with the problem of sin. Please look down with me to verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. To begin with, this information about the curtain seems like a random glitch. Why does Matthew switch from the camera showing Jesus' crucifixion to a camera inside the temple half a mile away from the crucifixion. The live feed switches from one camera to the other. And it does that because the two events are connected. The temple curtain splits because of Jesus' death. To understand this properly, we need to visualize the floor plan of the temple in Jerusalem. It was somewhat like an onion in its design. It had layers wrapped around a central room. And that innermost room of the temple, the center of the onion, was known as the most holy place or the holy of holies. It was God's dwelling place on earth. God's people believed in his omnipresence. They knew God wasn't confined to that one room, but God himself had set it apart as his special dwelling place on earth, and it had to be treated accordingly. Now, the curtain that Matthew suddenly switches to in his live feed acted as a barrier keeping people out of that most holy place. What it said to everyone who looked at it was God is pure and because of your impurity, you can't come close to him. The curtain was like a massive no entry sign. It acted like the offensive line in a football game. Those players who try to stop the other team getting through to the quarterback. Only one person was allowed through the curtain, the high priest of Israel, and even he was only allowed inside once a year. 
and he was only allowed inside once a year after a series of special sacrifices and ceremonies. The high priests, once a year going in, reinforced the general rule, no entry. That was the rule and the curtain enforced it. But at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain splits in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. The no entry sign is ripped in half. The message is clear. Jesus' death grants access to God. You can go in. The cloud, the cry and the curtain show us what was really happening as Jesus died. Many people mocked him. The soldiers, the robbers either side of him, the passers-by, the chief priests, teachers of the law and the elders. They assumed he wasn't who he said he was. They assumed he wasn't the genuine article. Thanks to the cloud, the cry and the curtain, we can be confident that Jesus truly was the sinless Son of God dying in our place. Can I ask, have you personally gone through to God yet? Have you admitted to him that you're not worthy to enter his presence because of your impurity, all the wrong things you've done? And have you then, after admitting that, gone through to God on the basis of Jesus' death alone, which pays the price owed for sin? Good Friday would be such a suitable day for you to do that if it's something you haven't yet done. Jesus' death provides access to God for anyone who wants to go through to him. But you have to go through. You have to say yes. You have to come to God to receive his spirit who empowers us to live a new life. Please go through to God if you haven't already done so. This Bible passage also has something to say to those of us who have already gone through to God thanks to Jesus' death. And that may well be all of us here today. The message for us is that we should make use of our access to God. We should come near to him. There's a prayer by Phillips Brooks who wrote the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which goes like this. Lord, by all thy dealings with us, whether of joy or pain, let us be brought to thee. I'll read that again. Lord, by all thy dealings with us, whether of joy or pain, let us be brought to thee. There's so much wisdom in that short prayer because it's all too easy for believers to keep our distance from God. As I look back on my Christian life, decades of it now, I see how often I kept God at a distance for long periods of time, not truly coming near to him. We should make use of our access to God. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. As we do those things, 
We're making use of our access to God. And Jesus urges us to do those things, to ask, to seek, to knock. I've noticed that mature Christians get very excited about God's promises. Promises like those ones I've just quoted, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. But there are many other promises in the Bible. Mature Christians love those promises and commit them to memory and they go to God with those promises, claiming them. Father, you have said, ask and it will be given to you. Please, I'm asking, please give this to me if it's your will. Father, you said, seek and you will find. Please, Father, I'm seeking guidance on this question. Please, would I find it from you? Father, you have said, knock and the door will be opened. I'm knocking. Please help me. Open the door and help me with this problem. We can do that sort of thing with all of the Bible's promises. We can bring them to God and say, here in your word, Father, it says that this is what you do for your people. Please do it for me. And that is one very practical, very day-to-day -day way in which we can make use of our access to God. And when we think, as we must do on Good Friday of all the days of the year, when we think of what it cost Jesus to give us this access to God, surely we honour him when we make use of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded again by your love in sending your Son, your beloved Son, to suffer this death for our sake. We're astounded again by your Son's love, willingly going through with that death for our sake. We praise you, Father, for the access to you that we have through Jesus. And we ask, Heavenly Father, claiming that promise, ask and it will be given to you. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would stir us up to make use of the access to you that we have through Jesus' death. Help us to treasure your promises as mature Christians do. Help us to commit them to memory bring them to our minds when we need them. And we pray, Father, that we would indeed take these promises into your throne room and claim them, asking you to fulfill them. For Jesus' sake, amen.